Great, and thank you, Peter. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I am Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being April 21st. The article for that call will be The Patient Who Falls. It's always a trade-off by Tanetti and Kumar. Uh, Today our featured speaker is uh, Dr. Frank Davidoff, uh, first author of the article, Heterogeneity is Not Always Noise, Lessons from Improvement. Uh, Dr. Davidoff is an internist who served on the faculty of Harvard and the University of Connecticut Medical School prior to becoming Senior Vice President for Education at the American College of Physicians and then editor of the Annals of Internal Medicine. He is now executive editor for the Institute of Healthcare Improvement and a contributing writer for JAMA. He served as a member of the Non-Prescription Drug Advisory Committee of the FDA and as chair of the Journal Oversight Committee for JAMA. He is currently vice chair of the Board of Physicians for Human Rights and is on the editorial boards of several clinical journals. His publications include more than 130 original papers and chapters on lipid metabolism, diabetes, and molecular pharmacology, as well as medical education, medical decision-making, biomedical research, research ethics, and healthcare improvement. He has also written numerous editorials and commentaries on clinical medicine, uh, medical editing, and the environment of medical practice. Uh, Dr. Davidoff, we're quite delighted to have you here. Great. Thank you. Uh, It's um, excellent to be here. Thank you. And as the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Davidoff's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on his article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author about research findings that can improve patient care. Together, Dr. Davidoff and I will help you translate his research into improvements in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Davidoff will spend about 10 to 15 minutes summarizing his findings. I will then take a couple of minutes to draw out some implications for the real-world practice setting and then set the stage for your questions and comments. I do want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but offering up your experience in this area will be helpful to the call. There are approximately 90 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. On another note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on these sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome Dr. Davidoff, who will provide an overview of his recent article. Dr. Davidoff. Thanks. Um, Well, the topic for today is a little bit different from the usual author in the room topic because what we're going to talk about today is not about a specific clinical intervention, but a way of thinking about clinical evidence. When I was the editor of Annals, I did a great deal of thinking about clinical evidence, and more particularly about clinical trials and how they work or how they don't work. Uh, Everyone in practice uh, reads reports of randomized trials and depends on them to one degree or another to guide their clinical decisions, as they should do. And by the time you've finished uh, seeing how um, uh, how the study group uh, excluded people who didn't fit into a narrow eligibility criteria, and how the statistical analysis in a randomized trial blurs the different responses among the participants in order to produce a single so-called point estimate of the efficacy of the intervention, it's hard to avoid the impression in reading randomized trial results that everyone in the trial benefited from the test or drug or procedure 
by exactly the amount specified in the point estimate. But that way of thinking is a reflection of what's called by the clinical epidemiologist types the ecological fallacy, <clears throat> which is the inference that the results for every individual participant in a trial is the same as it is for the whole group. Now, at the same time, curiously enough, everyone in clinical practice knows perfectly well that patients differ widely in their response to any particular intervention. And in fact, that reality is beginning to be reflected <clears throat> in a particular statistic that's now used to describe trial outcomes. And this is the so-called number needed to treat, or NNT, a measurement uh, that was introduced about 20 years ago. And that's a measure of how many people have to be exposed to an intervention for one person to benefit, assuming there is benefit. Now, it's actually pretty easy to calculate a number needed to treat. It's just the inverse of the absolute number of percentage points that the intervention changes the outcome. Now, most <clears throat> NNTs are actually in the range of, say, 20 or 30, sometimes as high as 100. One as high as 100 means that 100 people would have to be treated or exposed to whatever it is, the test, the drug, or the procedure to actually receive benefit. More uh, recently, <clears throat> uh, clinical trialists and statisticians have been trying to find new and better ways to capture some of this important variation in patient response to an intervention. And one such technique <clears throat> that I mentioned in the article <clears throat> is called risk stratification. Now, the concept there is also fairly simple. It assumes that the relative reduction in risk is about the same for everyone exposed to a, a clinical intervention, say 20% um, for everyone who participates in the trial. But uh, risk stratification recognizes that if your risk at baseline of having a bad outcome is relatively small, then the absolute benefit <clears throat> from a 20% reduction um, in that outcome <clears throat> um, will also be small, maybe 2%. On the other hand, if your baseline risk uh, is high to begin with, your potential benefit will be much greater, maybe 10%. And risk stratification actually calculates <clears throat> these different degrees of benefit for different risk groups. Now, <clears throat> none of this so far uh, has dealt with the issue of harms resulting from an intervention. Harms, of course, are less common in trials, and they're often harder to measure because they can be so variable. But, of course, they're also uh, extremely important because the net uh, effect of any particular intervention uh, is the balance between its benefits and its harms. So one important conclusion from risk stratification analyses of trials is that when an intervention is demonstrably beneficial in a whole group, <clears throat> the amount of benefit in low-risk patients from the intervention may actually be smaller than the risk of a serious toxic side effect or harm from the treatment. Now, this isn't exactly news, nor is it rocket science. Um, as clinicians, uh, we all know um, this kind of variation about this kind of variation uh, in our hearts. But it is helpful to see it confirmed by the numbers, and the numbers can help decide whether the benefit of any particular treatment and any particular patient is worth the risk. Take the case of the use of aspirin for primary prevention of myocardial infarction. That is, uh, its use in uh, people who are essentially healthy. Uh, <clears throat> there's a recent systematic review of the evidence on this subject in The Lancet. Uh, the reference, briefly, is, uh, uh, was published in two, the year 2009 in volume 373 on pages 1849 through 60. Now, the data that they summarized in that review make it clear that in the lowest risk groups, uh, the, uh, the use of aspirin is more likely to result in serious harm, principally intracranial or GI bleeding, than uh, to result in cardiovascular protection. And you can look at the numbers and see for yourself where people, patients, um, uh, would fall in, in, into which category they would fall. Um, <clears throat> there are also lots of other similar 
clinical situations uh, in which the balance of risk and benefit shifts demonstrably across a spectrum of patients. For example, anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy in patients with atrial fibrillation, um, screening for various diseases. And the case um, in point uh, that's received a lot of attention recently is, of course, mammography for younger women, where risk and benefit um, uh, balance out in, in some ways that uh, have raised a lot of concern. Uh, there's also, I think, a particularly instructive example um, <clears throat> in the uh, range of interventions that are available for carotid artery stenosis. Um, again, here there's a, an, an excellent reference on <clears throat> the way the baseline risk can affect uh, the balance of risk and benefit for any given intervention. The reference is uh, in JAMA in uh, 2008. It was a, uh, one of the clinical crossroads articles. Uh, it's volume 300, pages 81 to 90. The clinical crossroads articles are uh, really excellent examples of how clinical evidence can be interpreted in the light of uh, any individual patient's situation. So let me um, <clears throat> end this sort of introductory thoughts by uh, saying just a little bit about the kind of interventions that are now called quality improvement, or QI. And these are um, what's meant by the term nowadays is essentially um, a number of complicated programs whose goal is to change the way staff and patients deliver care. Now, everybody knows how hard it is to change uh, behavior or the performance of individual people and of organizations. And the way that programs that change performance work really is fundamentally different from the way that tests and drugs and procedures work. The latter really are uh, intended to change the way biological systems behave, and that's obviously rather different than changing human behavior. For example, social change programs uh, are never really the same in any two places. They're interpreted differently by the people who implement them. Uh, they're adapted and they're modified to fit the circumstances in each place. And by design, they change over time in response to feedback about how well they're working or not working. And finally, and maybe most importantly, they are intrinsically context-dependent. You can't just control out the people, the organizational culture, the resources, the history, the staff structure. You just can't uh, control them out of any single place the way you might be able to control out uh, context factors in a clinical trial of a drug or a test. So this means that uh, every individual organization or group that undertakes a particular improvement program is like a single patient in a clinical trial. And that means that it's really hard to do efficacy studies of QI programs, that is, uh, studies to show whether a particular QI program, quote, works, since you need large numbers of individual program sites to get enough statistical power to show efficacy. And in the article, I use the example of the rapid response team systems introduced in many hospitals um, to demonstrate why this um, individuality of um, um, QI programs uh, makes a big difference in how you evaluate them. On top of the um, particular nature of um, quality improvement uh, programs and behavior change programs that differs from the usual clinical interventions, uh, there's an added complication to behavior change programs, and that is the risk, and it's a substantial risk, that the non-intervention group in a controlled trial of a QI intervention will be, quote, contaminated by the intervention since behavior change programs spread easily among people, just like viruses, basically. Um, <clears throat> and the example of the uh, cluster trial of, ra of uh, rapid response teams that was carried out in Australia several years ago uh, is uh, an example where contamination was almost certainly a problem. Now, all of this also means that it may be more appropriate and more feasible to demonstrate whether a QI programs by confirming it that it works across many sites and over time than by trying to pr disprove statistically that it works in a controlled trial. What's more, <clears throat> what's learned from programs or sites where a QI program doesn't seem to work 
can be at least as interesting and important as what's learned from the sites where it does work. And that's because it's the non-responders that can provide clues as to why the program does or doesn't work in various different settings. So while cl uh, traditional clinical trialists are understandably and justifiably disappointed when a test or drug or procedure doesn't seem to work in a particular patient, the people who, who evaluate social change programs like QI programs feel differently about sites where a program doesn't seem to work. And that's because, as the jazz musician Dr. John says, you need to know that your worst day is a blessing because you might learn something from it. Uh, or as the people who work in quality improvement put it, every defect is a treasure. So with that, why don't I um, stop and let's uh, begin the comments and discussion. Wow. Well, thank you, Dr. Davidoff, um, number one, for addressing, I think, a very uh, complex yet energizing topic, and that is heterogeneity. Um, and it feels to me like we have an opportunity to talk about this really at two levels, as you articulated. Um, how do we as clinicians um, use this information in terms of how we uh, maybe apply or don't apply either research findings or guidelines to specific patients? but also on a more fascinating level um, when those of us who do quality improvement work uh, go out to do this, um, really understanding what the heterogeneity tells us. Um, and I love your closing comment uh, about every defect is a treasure. Uh, we generally don't feel that way when it comes to patient care, hmm. um, uh, and obviously that's a hard thing to deal yep. with. Yep. And, and so um, I guess as I think about your, your work, it really – um, give some context and some permission both to the decisions we make as clinicians whether or not to apply a specific treatment or guideline to a patient. Um, but also as I think about that, um, it may say that certain treatments that have insufficient evidence base to be accepted as standard of care may also work in individual patients. Um, any comments on that? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Because strictly speaking, when you do a risk stratification analysis, you may um, do uh, that on a um, trial that is that overall appeared to give a negative result. That is to say, the intervention didn't seem to work. Um, <clears throat> but it is uh, quite possible that when you do the risk stratification analysis to discover uh, certain uh, people um, who are exposed to the intervention for whom it did work. And that might be hidden or essentially buried or diluted out in the overall trial results. That's pretty unusual, very likely. I don't think there have been enough actual risk stratification analyses to show how often that happens. But it, it, it's possible in principle, which gets back to your point that um, a treatment that um, <clears throat> hasn't been shown to work in a group might, in fact, um, work with the occasional patient, and, that, and particularly if it's been studied and been shown to be marginal in its overall statistical benefit, that's perhaps where it'd be more likely that the occasional um, and unusual patient might, uh, might benefit. Well, thank you. And I, I think um, this whole conversation, at least wearing my clinician hat for a moment, has made things a whole lot more complex. So thank you very much. <laughs> um, let's go ahead now and uh, open the lines for questions from our callers. Uh, Peter, do you want to go ahead and uh, introduce the uh, question and answer session, please? Thank you so much. Uh, to ask a question on the telephone, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you have a speakerphone, please ensure that the mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, for questions or comments, please press star 1 at this time. And I want to go ahead and, again, reinforce how important questions are, uh, either about the particular article itself or the comments that have been made. And uh, also, callers are welcome to share examples of either ways that you have applied uh, Dr. Davidoff's thinking um, or the particular content in his article. Uh, any questions in the queue at this time, Peter? Yes, we have one. Let's go to St. Barnabas Medical Center, Jean Kraft's line. Hi. Um, listening to um, what you said today and, and having read the article, it would almost suggest that 
uh, almost by definition, meta-analyses are seriously flawed because they incorporate um, more heterogeneity than they actually focus the question of, of research. Um, is, that, is that possible? Um, uh, Meta-analysis is a very, potentially a very powerful tool but it's like uh, you know driving a Lamborghini or something. You have to be very careful how you handle it. I mean, I'm not um, specific, particularly expert in meta-analysis, but um, <clears throat> I, I think I have come to appreciate um, their, the potential value and strength of meta-analyses in pulling together um, evidence that would otherwise be um, unconvincing or obscure or not powerful enough to um, guide clinical decisions. And the example that's often used is the, uh, is the efficacy, uh, trials of the efficacy of thrombolytic agents in myocardial infarction, um, <clears throat> which um, there were several trials many years ago that sh seemed to show uh, the efficacy of, th of this intervention. But um, somehow or other, that, uh, the strength of that evidence wasn't captured in any single trial, and it was only when, in retrospect, they were uh, pulled together into a meta-analysis that it became clear that after about the fifth or sixth trial, the evidence was overwhelming, and yet it took something like another 15, 10 or 15 years before thrombolysis was introduced as fairly um, routine clinical practice in patients with myocardial infarction. So the uh, meta-analysis can be enormously important and valuable. The problem is that, as you say, um, meta-analysis um, uh, is, is, is a somewhat tricky technique to, to use properly and to interpret properly. And um, that, that is a problem because I think most of us, me included, are probably not properly equipped to, to be able to critique a meta-analysis and say, well, um, it probably really isn't done as well as it should have been, um, and how do I interpret it? The other point to be made about them is that even though they're mostly used to try to pull together and, and synthesize evidence to confirm that a treatment works, um, <clears throat> they can be um, uh, potentially at least as useful to um, take an intervention where it doesn't seem to work or it doesn't seem to work uniformly and be able to explore, well, what were the reasons that it didn't work in... Uh, the trials where it didn't. Because, of course, almost any intervention that's studied in clinical trials works in some of them and not in others. And, and meta-analyses can serve the very useful function of trying to pinpoint why they're not working, which gets to my, the last point in my introduction, which was um, <clears throat> there, <laughs> there are important lessons to be learned <laughs> from uh, failures of trials. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I think it confirms your the thrust of your question, which is that analyses are, they're not as straightforward as they look, but they can, in fact, really be very useful in the right circumstances. Thank you. So, so any advice, Dr. David Ott, in terms of when we look at a meta-analysis, um, how we should think about that or be aware for, you know, missing heterogeneity when we look at the results of meta-analyses? Well, one thing that can help is to look um, for where it came from because, uh, for example, the, the Cochrane collaboration, which <clears throat> it was set up to collect and disseminate the results, um, actually to carry out and to collect uh, the results of meta-analyses and disseminate them, um, uh, has a very careful review process. Once the meta-analysis is done, it's then subjected to peer review by, by people who are pretty much expert in meta-analysis so that there's, you have some ad added confidence that the meta-analysis from the Cochrane collaboration is going to be uh, reasonably reliable. Got it. Um, it it's obviously there are a lot of meta-analyses being done by other people, and, uh, you know, there's more questions perhaps about the, the quality of the analysis in those. Uh, if in doubt, I guess the thing to do is to uh, try to get a hold of someone who is more familiar with the technical aspects of meta-analyses and see if they can uh, um, help you make a judgment about whether it whether it's reliable. Um, there, there are some statistical 
twists and turns that are important to know about. Great. Well, thank you. Did that address your question? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, Peter, do we have any other callers in the queue at this time? Not at this time. Okay, great. Well, I, you know, I would like to ask you, Dr. Davidoff, to talk a little bit more about the area of quality improvement. Um, that is to say, when we're trying to, you know, take a best practice or take a guideline, um, and then try to disseminate that or spread that, mm -hmm. um, how we can use this work to inform our approach. Um, so if I'm the leader of a medical group or something and I'm trying to implement a new system, a new process more broadly, um, how do I look at those units? Um, what do I look for in terms of heterogeneity? And then how do I take that into informing the work that I do? Well, um, let me try to answer that in a, or respond to that in a couple of ways. One is, um, it harkens back to advice that was given many years ago by the essentially the founder of modern endocrinology, and I started my career as an endocrinologist, uh, Fuller Albright, <clears throat> when he was giving advice to young clinical investigators, um, used to make the, the point that one of the things you should do when you're getting into clinical investigation is measure something. Mm -hmm. And so and when people are doing quality improvement, it is extremely valuable to... Um, be able to measure something to give yourself an idea of whether what you're doing is making a difference. Obviously, measure, measuring something can be done several ways. It can be done with, quantitatively. And, and often there are things you can do, waiting times or um, the frequency if a test is, test is ordered or not or that a treatment is given or not. But sometimes it can be qualitative. But that, that's, a, that's a measure of sorts. So um, uh, I would... Uh, I think most of the quality improvement people are um, very insistent on the importance of uh, measuring something or assessing something that can be uh, seen as a use of an important clinical outcome. Um, and, and so you're talking, and you're talking not about measurement, obviously, for publication or for dissemination, but really measurement for learning per se um, about whether things are working. Is that correct? Right. In fact, uh, Leif Solberg, who I think is in Minnesota, uh, uh, some good many years ago now, wrote a very important article on three different ways, essentially, of, of measuring um, uh, things or, or, as he put it, collecting information about clinical work, uh, depending on what you're going to be doing with, uh, with the information. One is the kind of relatively... Um, um, informal way of collecting information that you use um, just in the process of doing the improvement uh, to let yourself know, you and your group and your organization know whether what you're doing is working. And then based on that information, going back and, and perhaps changing the way you're doing things to uh, try to make it work better. And the next level is, I think what he refers to is something like um, accountability. That is to say, um, you want to present information to, for example, a, a department head or an um, administrative group or perhaps the board of trustees uh, or perhaps the community on to demonstrate that you're really making progress in an area that needed it, uh, whether it's hand washing or, or pre-op administration of antibiotics, whatever it is. Uh, and the data there would probably need to be uh, more systematically collected, more carefully uh, vetted for accuracy and so on. And finally, there's um, collecting information for research. And there, you probably need to have the sort of most rigorous and um, complex uh, system for making sure that your data are bulletproof and uh, uh, so that they can withstand uh, uh, statistical analysis and be convincing to um, editors and readers. And so as I think about that, for you know, probably most of us are not doing research per se. And as you make uh, the comment to us that um, everybody should measure something, it sounds like primarily what you're talking about is the first kind, that is mm -hmm. enough information to satisfy the people doing the work that a change is an improvement or that we're moving in the right direction. Exactly. That's great. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, Peter, do we have any other callers in the queue at this time? Yes, we do. We have a couple. Let's first go to Andrew Miller with HQSI. 
Hi, Dr. Davidoff. Um, you're, I just wanted to ask a question about uh, risk reduction versus harm. The example you gave with aspirin uh, reducing the risk of, of heart attacks, but the harm of uh, GI, major GI bleeds or intracranial hemorrhage, mm-hmm. how do you, bal- how do you weight, uh, weight the, the risks in, this, in that particular example? It may be that three GI hemorrhages are equal to one MI prevented, or maybe that two MIs prevented are equal to one intracranial hemorrhage uh, that's caused. Um, is there any, do you have any uh, advice on how you, how you do weigh those? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really crucial point, and it came up uh, very, in a very stark way in the recent debate, rather uh, vigorous debates about mammography in women between ages 40 and 49. Exactly. Because there, there was much um, question of whether um, the anxiety produced by a, a seemingly positive mammogram result, which turned out to be a false positive, was really as harmful as, um, say, missing a, a breast cancer that might be cured. And um, that's a perfectly legitimate um, question uh, to raise. Uh, as, as I see it, and I think probably most people do ultimately, there isn't any simple, straightforward, foolproof way to weigh and balance um, those two kinds of competing factors. That then gets into issues of personal judgment, personal preference, and personal values. And um, uh, perhaps the useful lesson there is that when there is this kind of mix of different kinds of outcomes that, that sort of oppose each other, that's the situation where you take it to the patient and say, here's what it means for, to have a mammogram at age 43, uh, here's what the benefit may be, here's what some of the risks are, and it's up to you primarily to decide how you balance those out, and I'm here to help you try to sort that out and answer questions. Because at a certain point, the numbers um, leave off having absolute meaning, and then the meaning begins to be what people place on them. Oh, I think that's a that's a great point. And, and as a case in point, as we were having this debate around our clinic, one of uh, my partners, who's a female physician, said, I have never in my 30 years of practice have a woman who was upset about having a negative biopsy after a positive mammogram. Mm-hmm. which I think was her way of speaking to your point, yeah. that um, it is very much value-driven. Does that address your question, uh, Dr. Miller? Yes, it did. Thank you very much. Great. All right. Thank you. Uh, Peter, can we go on to our next caller, please? Uh, yes. Let's go to Valerie Hooper with Medical College of Georgia School of Nursing. Great. Thank you, Valerie. Go ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, I do quite a bit of work with translation science, um, working with Rogers Diffusions of Innovation and also looking at the Paris model out of the UK. And I'm curious as to your thoughts of the relationship of evidence, or in Rogers' terms, it would be innovation qualities, characteristics, and and the practice or the context setting because I am a perianesthesia nurse and what we are finding in some of our national guidelines is that we have a very high degree of adoption with guidelines that A, do not add to the workload of the nurse or the physician anesthesia provider or that B, are recommending interventions that are easily accessible, i.e., for post-op nausea and vomiting, they're recommending prophylactic meds or rescue meds that are available in the PIXIS on the anesthesia cart. On the other hand, when we look at guidelines for the prevention of um, perioperative hypothermia, which requires possibly pre-warming the patient, so you've got to bring the patient in earlier the day of surgery, you've got to purchase new equipment, you've got to add workload to the nurse, um, and you may have to purchase equipment to warm the patient intraoperatively, our adoption levels are lower. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the interaction of the evidence, the qualities of the evidence and the context context in which they are being adopted and 
does that context not only vary facility to facility, but does it also vary unit to unit within a facility? Great question, Valerie. Thank you. Dr. Yes, Davidoff? That is a, that's a terrific question, and it's a very complicated question uh, because I think it touches on a whole variety of different factors that weigh into the final decision on whether people are going to use a guideline. Um, the, the example you just gave about um, uh, hypothermia and so on uh, reminds me of uh, what, as I recall, from the Rogers work uh, as being um, a, an, an intervention or an element to an improvement program that uh, that doesn't uh, actually fit very well with the existing structure and culture of, a, of an organization. Um, and in this case, it's... Uh, uh, it's partly that the resources may not be there, and someone may have to go out and buy new equipment, which costs quite a bit. So in that sense, it doesn't fit. Um, that's, uh, that's one element. Another is um, uh, how important, how valuable the change in outcome would be. And this gets back to the question that we were just talking about a little while ago, is, is how do you value the different outcomes? So that, for example, if... Um, uh, an out, if an intervention might actually save a life, that it might be uh, more of an impetus for people to go out and get the equipment and to actually um, um, implement that part of the intervention or that part of the guideline because the apparent value is going to be uh, so much greater than some other things that might perhaps be more a matter of comfort or transient harm or d disability. So uh, the weight or value of the outcome is important. And in that connection, um, this business of number needed to treat is interesting because there are some interventions where the number needed to treat is as much as 100 or more than 100. Uh, and yet they're, um, they apply to widely used and, and strongly, uh, widely accepted interventions like thrombolysis for myocardial infarction. Because the number needed to treat um, with thrombolysis to prevent one death is about 100. And yet, because it prevents a death, it's deemed as being useful and is used very widely. Um, so I think those are all things that figure in to the questions uh, of whether or not to people are actually going to go about uh, using part of a, a part of a guideline. The other, another one, obvious one, is uh, how common it is. So, for example, um, one of the arguments about why people don't wash their hands or staff don't wash their hands as often as they probably really need to in um, hospital uh, units, wards, and so on, is that um, the number of infections um, that occur in hospitalized patients as a result of not washing your hands is relatively small compared to the number of times you have to wash your hands. So frequency is another issue, and if hypothermia... Um, um, helps to prevent an, uh, an important outcome, but that outcome is pretty rare, that also to kind of discourages people from uh, putting it into practice. So I, I think it's a, it is a complex question. It's an important one. I don't think there's a simple answer. So, so as I'm sort of listening to you speak here and envisioning your answer, I'm seeing almost a matrix. If mm -hmm. we think about maybe unbundling uh, a set of interventions in a change package, um, on one axis is sort of the individual changes, and on the other axis then is the cost defined broadly, um, whether it's cultural costs, capital costs, um, the human attention we have to focus to make them happen. And it's sounding like um, you know, perhaps institutions or leaders will pick and choose out of that bundle uh, based on how things fall in that matrix. Yeah, I think that would be potentially a, a very useful way to, to think about it. Does that work in your world, Valerie? I, I'm sitting here jotting and making notes as you're talking. Um, you know, I think that's the one thing um, in some of these theoretical models that we have not really looked at is the value of the outcome. We've been so focused on the issue surrounding translation, which context, is, is so very key to that translation piece. But I don't know that we have necessarily considered the value of the outcome and how that impacts the willingness to translate 
the evidence to practice. So I, I'm very appreciative of that insight. Um, I've yeah, added a new, I've added yeah. a new piece to my model. Okay. There's one other way to look at it uh, uh, that I've heard discussed recently. I think it may be quite useful, and that is when people are asked to, clinicians are asked to implement a guideline, they very frequently don't, and as you say. And when they're asked why they didn't, they often have a rationale for not doing so, and it's usually along the lines of, well, this patient didn't really fit the guideline, that they, in a sense they were an unusual patient. On the other hand, they will sometimes use the guideline, and when they're asked about that, they say, well, the patient fits. They are a usual patient. And the distinction between usual and unusual could be a really interesting and, and valuable one in the sense that um, once you start asking people um, why this patient's unusual and therefore the, the guideline doesn't fit, you can then do a couple of things. One is you can confirm that maybe this guideline doesn't work and can't work for the patients of this unusual sort, or you can change the guideline. And that's the approach that the the people at Intermountain Healthcare have taken with their weaning protocols for patients in the ICU on, on respirators. And um, uh, the, the setup there is the, there's a, a computerized guideline on, on the weaning approach, and uh, clinicians are perfectly uh, enabled to um, not follow the guideline. But if they do so, the price they have to pay is they have to say why. And then the group that's working to develop the guideline takes all the comments and, and justifications for why it wasn't used, and they rethink the guideline, and they progressively have modified it over time so that it actually gets used more and more because it's appropriate to more and more patients. So again, this is using sort of every defect as a treasure. If the guideline isn't working, finding out why and trying to respond appropriately to those reasons can actually make the guideline better. So, so there's a, another connection with the uh, heterogeneity issue. Well, and, and that's brilliant because it actually links um, the, the clinical decision-making around guideline use or not to organizational learning uh, in, in a way of sort of as almost as a forced function of making every clinician, their job is not just to make good decisions for patients, but to continue to, to contribute to organizational learning. So I think that's a very interesting design. Well, Valerie, thank you for your question. I want to go back to Peter and see if there's any other callers in the queue at this time. Uh, yes, let's go to uh, the Dartmouth Institute with uh, David Stevens. Uh, David, go ahead, please. Oh, thanks, and uh, thanks, Frank, for a wonderfully lucid uh, uh, discussion today. Um, I wonder if this conversation about um, guidelines and, and certainly about heterogeneity doesn't raise an issue um, regarding um, ways we might communicate this more effectively um, and as authors. Um, I wonder if it doesn't raise the importance of the limitations section of a paper for an author and consequently for a reader. I mean, traditionally, we we think of the limitations section of a paper as the apologia that the author sticks in just to let you know that he thought about it or she thought about it or the, re the reviewer maybe... Uh, uh, asks for uh, some more, you know, apologies. But I, I wonder if this doesn't raise the whole question of context and heterogeneity doesn't raise the limitation section to a kind of a, a, a new importance uh, so that uh, one fully fleshes out uh, the power of the observations in a particular context, uh, even if it's uh, sort of a Dr. John equivalent uh, of a, a really bad day. I, I wonder, if, Frank, if you'd be willing to comment on that. Uh, well, first, a disclosure, and that is that David Stevens and I are colleagues and work closely together. And secondly, that he's an editor. He has <laughs> the, the journal Quality and Safety in Healthcare. No, I think that's a really excellent uh, question, uh, David. Uh, the problem with limitation sections of papers is that that's the probably one of the most commonly omitted section of the discussion by people who write um, 
manuscripts sent to medical journals because it's difficult to confront and deal with the limitations of your of your work, uh, but it's really crucial. One thing uh, that occurs to me that might be a specific response uh, and suggestion that would follow from your question, David, would be that if someone is doing a rigorous randomized trial that has very carefully constructed exclusion criteria and um, uh, statistical techniques that, that uh, kind of uh, blur the uh, heterogeneity of the participants, would be in the improvement uh, in the in the uh, in the limitation section of the discussion to make the point that this is a carefully controlled trial, and therefore has all the limitations of uh, such trials um, relative to say something like an effectiveness trial. Effectiveness trials really will introduce the same intervention, but do it in a much more so-called real-world setting, where there really are no exclusion criteria. Um, and, and therefore, you are going to perhaps get rather different answers than if you do um, the intervention in a very carefully controlled circumstance where the context is essentially controlled out. And, and making that point very clearly in the limitation section might be extremely helpful, at least as a, as a start in the direction that you're, you're talking about. Beyond that, um, there could be lots of other more specific and sophisticated and statistically um, uh, fancy ways to uh, deal with limitations in a limitation section, but that's beyond, that's, that's outside my job description. Great. Well, thank you for that great question. Uh, Peter, we have time for one more relatively brief question. Any callers in the queue at this time? Okay, let's go to uh, Will Cornell Medical College with Marlon Matson. Yes, hi, uh, Dr. Davidoff. Uh, this is Marlon Matson. Uh, this is a question about uh, uh, clinical practice guidelines. And I um, have always wondered that when specialties or subspecialties develop or revise a clinical practice guideline, should, should the uh, organization really uh, uh, develop a select core of quality measures that can be defined and that these measures are the ones that have the very strongest science supporting them, and that this really can support better quality improvement efforts so that a facility can select one or several uh, depending on their particular uh, patient population or circumstances at the time. Uh, well, I, I, if I understand your question correctly, um, again, it's a somewhat complicated question. Um, this would perhaps get back to the issue of values, because um, uh, I think what you're asking about is um, weighting the different kinds of clinical outcomes one against the other to help people decide um, where to put their efforts. So that that certainly does make a certain amount of sense, but it does get off into the question of, well, you know, someone the values in one institution might be somewhat different from the values. Um, in another. Uh, so I don't know that there's an easy way to give um, an answer of how to, um, you know, how to sit down and, and make those choices. Uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has uh, done something along those lines, not quite what you're asking about, I think, but it's similar, and that is they have something called the Improvement Map, I believe it's called, where they have basically assembled a um, an array of the various kinds of improvement programs that are being quite widely used, and each of them obviously gets at various different outcomes. And they've put together a kind of a matrix that an, an institution could sit down and say, well, okay, here's 75 different improvement um, um, interventions that have, have some pretty decent evidence to support them. Um, uh, now they, and then they need to look at their own institution and say, well, where where do the problems lie, and how do those problems match with some of these interventions? That doesn't get to the issue I think that you were also asking about, which is the strength of evidence. And I suppose that would factor in as yet another factor, but not maybe the only determining factor of, well, the evidence for that is for intervention A is pretty flaky, so maybe that we should stay away from that, whereas the evidence for intervention B is pretty strong, maybe that we should pay more attention to that one. On the other hand, B may actually turn out to be seen as less useful than A. So 
I don't again I don't think there's a simple approach but but both of those are legitimate things to factors to weigh in making the decision. I don't know does that come close to your answering the question? Right, I think that's helpful because you know when when all the individuals that are involved in the development of the guideline are really looking at the strength of the evidence and they then are really in a place to begin to define uh, some of the core measures that could be considered. Mm. And then these become stimuli for the, uh, the local facility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Well, thank you, Marlon, for that question. Um, and unfortunately, that's all the time we have for questions today. Uh, this has been a wonderful discussion of the issues brought out uh, by your article, Dr. Davidoff. Uh, we do have a couple minutes for any closing comments or thoughts that you want to leave us with. Um, well, I guess maybe the only other general thought that might be helpful is um, to to make the, the point that um, the way a lot of quality improvement works and the way it changes behavior or changes the way performance um, is a lot closer to what people call um, experiential learning than it is to learning from research. I mean, experiential learning is, as it implies, learning from experience or essentially trial and error uh, of uh, a more or less rigorous kind, whereas learning uh, from research involves a much more methodical, systematic, carefully planned, and slower process. Both have their places, but um, experiential learning is uh, probably a lot more appropriate to the kinds of things that people do in trying to make care, care delivered more uh, effectively. Um, uh, it's, it's appropriate, if, if possible, to do careful research, rigorous research studies of improvement interventions, but they're much harder to do they take a longer time, and they're often not entirely appropriate to the nature of improvement, whereas experiential learning is often uh, quicker. It's uh, maybe less rigorous, but done right, it actually can be uh, really quite powerful. Great. Well, I'd like to thank you again, Dr. David Off, for your participation on the call today and for really uh, providing us such an enlightening discussion. So as a closing reminder, I do want to remind everyone that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion uh, will take place on April 21st, um, and our featured guest will be uh, author uh, Dr. Tinetti uh, discussing uh, the recent article, The Patient Who Falls, It's Always a Trade-Off. Uh, Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Uh, This is an interactive conference call designed to help accelerate changes that improve clinical patient care. Thanks to all of you for being part of Author in the Room, and have a good day.